Good afternoon. We did not get the word to the AV guys. I'm not going to be preaching from Mark chapter 2. You can turn your Bible to the book of Acts. And we'll wait to hear what Hiram has to say from Mark chapter 2, maybe next Sunday. I want to promise you up front, the only disclaimer I'm going to make, that this lesson is not going to be a travel log. So it's not going to be, uh, let me tell you where we went the last couple of weeks. But it is going to center around some of the places that uh, we did go. And I, I don't know how you are, I kind of jokingly refer to myself as Magellan. I, I'm directionally challenged. I get lost, it's easier in Bowling Green than some of the bigger cities I've been in. But I, it's ironic that that's the case because I love maps. One of my favorite subjects is geography, and it's, it's not world geography I have a hard uh, time with. It's the two streets over that I can't find. But I want to help you. I don't know if you're this way or not. By the way, Clint, we've talked about U- Ukraine before. That was the first mission trip I ever went on, and the first song we ever sang together was Blessed Assurance. They've got a big song book, but it happened to be the same song. My purpose on this particular trip we just finished was to make some biblical connections in the place where Paul walked. As you all were fully aware, and we appreciate the prayers, we thought we were going to be going some different places than we did. Um, As you look at this map, the map has changed. This part of the world has been relabeled because of wars and conquests and empires throughout the years. What you see here is today's map. And we're going to talk about some places as they occurred at a different time and how the gospel spread and how important this sea, oops, this sea, the Mediterranean Sea, is to the spread and the growth of Christianity, at least indirectly, if not directly, why the gospel was preached to you at some point. But I want to begin with this sea, the Mediterranean Sea, and consider how vast it is. It touches three continents of the seven in the world. It touches the European continent up to the north. It touches the Asian continent that goes on out to uh, India and out to China in the world. And then it touches the European continent. So well over half the world's population touches the Mediterranean Sea or or, uh, continents that do that. When we think about the Mediterranean Sea, we went 3,000 miles uh, around it. That's pretty impressive. It takes a long time to do that. But did you know that the Mediterranean Sea is a million square miles in its diameter? It touches the, its northernmost point is the southern part of Europe. Its southernmost point is the northern coast of Africa. It touches the Atlantic on the west. And it touches what we would refer to as the Holy Land, the Middle East, on its eastern side. And that may have been why you were worried about us. This was as close as we got to the action. I guess that's pretty close. But out here the day we left, there were six U.S. warships between us and Israel. So we felt fairly safe about that. The Mediterranean Sea was not fully navigated until the second millennium B.C. When there began to be civilizations known as the seafaring nations that began to ply its waters, but it was much different than it is today. You think about how big that body of water is that we talked about, and they were navigating it with sailboats. When we read in Acts chapter 27, we realize how frequently they were subject to disasters on the sea, shipwrecks and storms that came along. In fact, on one of the days that we were there that was not a, uh, a biblical city, 
We had the opportunity to visit an underwater archaeology museum and all the wreckages that they have pulled up from the Mediterranean, and it happened routinely. The Hebrew people were trying to get to the promised land, the land that God promised to Abraham over here, and so they weren't really interested in navigating these waters, but these other nations began to do that. And so when the Old Testament refers to the great sea, it's somewhat fearfully and mysteriously. In Joshua chapter 9 and verse 1, you have peoples who they were going to conquer who had come from that part of the world, but when they referred to it, it was simply the great sea. And the psalmist in Psalm 104, he called it a sea great with animals and swarms and even the home of Leviathan in Psalm 104, verse 25 and 26. It was also, if you recall, when Jonah was asked to go and preach to the people of Nineveh who would have been up there uh, east of Turkey, he went down here to Joppa and he got on a, a boat just above Tel Aviv and he tried to go as far away from God as he could up here to uh, Tarsus. And he was swallowed by a great, some versions say sea monster, some say a great fish, some versions of the New Testament even call it a whale that swallowed Jonah in Jonah chapter 1 and verse 3. And so people were afraid of that water. Even by Paul's day, shipwrecks were commonplace, but the Romans were in control. And as a result of this, they were plying its waters all the time. They were taking foodstuffs and materials and uh, weapons and armory all over the empire. And they were so concerned about their soldiers and their citizens and the people that they had subjugated, they made sure that those things were being carried constantly. So the Apostle Paul found himself and others did, risking their lives to get on that sea. You crisscross the book of Acts and the places that we're going to look at this afternoon and you're going to see how the Apostle Paul was taking his life in his hands and it wasn't just him. There were other Christians who got on those boats with him to take the gospel of Jesus to places that it had not been. But you think about how Barnabas and Mark, maybe this was why Mark was ready to go back to Jerusalem because he was afraid of plying those waters. And there was Silas and there was Timothy and Luke and even after Paul had shipwrecked more than once, Aristarchus got on the boat with him in Acts chapter 27 and verse 4 to go with Paul to Rome. No wonder Paul would say, I spent a night and a day in the deep. 2 Corinthians 11 and verse 26. I began to research this because I was in a room in a boat over that thing the whole time, so I want to know what was underneath me. Did you know that there are 50 species of sharks in the Mediterranean Sea. It's a tropical climate. It's a beautiful hunting ground if you're a shark. And among those 50 species is the great white with its seven rows and 300 sharp teeth. And Paul was out in the middle of undoubtedly the Mediterranean. And he would say, no wonder in the next verse, I was in dangers on the sea. And what's remarkable is even after he said this, Paul got on that ship to go to Rome to testify before Caesar in Acts chapter 27. As we think about some of the places that you read about in your Bible that we had the blessing to go and see, I want you to think about some lessons that we can learn from just a few of those. There were only so many seaports, and I'm not going to deal with all of those, but there's something to be learned from all of them. The first one is in Cyprus. We want to remind ourselves that uh, Paul was known as Saul of Tarsus, and he was a devout Jew who came to be in Jerusalem and he began to persecute the church. 
He made havoc of it according to Acts chapter 8 verse 1 through 4. And they that were scattered abroad went everywhere preaching the word. And everywhere was going to be Judea, Samaria, and ultimately to the uttermost parts of the known world. And so as the Apostle Paul, as he's known as Saul, is breathing out threats against the church, he's on his way to what's now Damascus in Syria. And on the road to Damascus he encounters Christ. He is told to go to Damascus and he's told that there he would be told what to do. And in Acts chapter 9 and verse 15, Ananias, who is otherwise unknown to us in the New Testament, a great reminder for us that if we are serving God, we may not be known in our brotherhood. We may not be known in the pages of church history, but God is paying attention. So far as we know, the only convert that Ananias ever had was the great Apostle Paul. And Damascus goes to him and he has a very simple message for him. He says, you are going to be a chosen vessel of mine before the sons of Israel and kings and Gentiles of the earth. That sets us up for the rest of the book of Acts where the gospel is going to leave that one little area of the world where, uh, in the area where Jesus was born and the church began and it was going to go everywhere. But what God says to Ananias to tell Saul is, you're going to be a chosen vessel. A vessel is simply a container that is empty, that can be filled. Chosen is the idea is that one has a favorable view for the object that's chosen. And so the message that God sends to Saul through Ananias is, you're empty. I want you to empty yourself of what you were before And I want you to be filled with the gospel of Christ. Read Galatians 1 and Galatians 2 and see how the Apostle Paul says, Jesus filled me with his gospel. And he'll talk about how he received direct revelation. And God says, I want you to go and I want you to empty it out to the Jews and to the kings and to the Gentiles. So as you think about all you read in the book of Acts, it's going to be a series of him going to some of the places that we're going to talk about and doing that very thing. But here's the neat thing. The Apostle Paul is the only writer after Luke that's going to use this idea of a chosen vessel. And every time he uses that word, he doesn't use it of himself. He uses it of you and me. In Romans chapter 9 and verse 21, he talks about how we are chosen vessels. If you want to do some further study on that, look in uh, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 20 and 21. In a great house, there are all kind of vessels. And God wants us all to be vessels of honor. One time, Peter uses a synonym in 1 Peter 2, 9, and he says, You are a chosen generation of people for God's own possession." When you think about how God says, of all the people in the world, Ananias, I want you to go to Saul. I want you to teach him the gospel. I want you to baptize him. And he is going to be a chosen vessel of mine to accomplish my will. He's going to empty himself out in front of Jews and Gentiles everywhere. And when God speaks to you and me in the New Testament, he says, you are chosen vessels. Fill yourself up with my word and then empty yourself out on all of those that you come in contact with. Well, as we think about where he goes, uh, Saul is being trained and, and is learning. And on the first missionary journey, they go from Antioch of Syria and they go across on a boat across the Mediterranean to Cyprus. And when they get to Cyprus, they probably found the church already there. When we look at how 
the gospel is spreading because of the persecution of Stephen, we read some interesting statements in Acts chapter 11. In 19 and 20, we find how there are Christians who are spread out through the persecution and they go over to the island of Cyprus and they preach to the Jews. But keep reading in the context and you'll find how that there are folks on Cyprus who are already Christians who go up around Antioch of Syria and they preach the gospel not only to Jews but to Gentiles. When we think about Cyprus, it is probably mentioned more than any of the places I'm going to mention tonight in the Bible besides Rome itself. If you look in your Old Testament and you come across Chittim or Kittim, you're reading about this particular area. You're talking about the same folks. They're the seafaring uh, peoples there on Cyprus. And so as you read in Genesis and Numbers and First Chronicles and all the major prophets, they are mentioning to us the people who live on Cyprus. But in the New Testament, only in the book of Acts. Cyprus is the place where a man named Manasin is going to host Paul and his fellow workers at the end of their third missionary journey. So he's important. The church is there. It's important because Paul and Barnabas and Mark, they take the gospel from one end of that island to the other. They get over to Paphos and they convert Sergius Paulus, a Roman proconsul. One of our guides told us that makes Cyprus the first Christian nation because the Roman proconsul was the leader. He was the highest government official on the island. And when he obeyed the gospel, he adopted Christianity. When we think about Cyprus, the church grew. But here's a sad fact. Something we found as we went all around this Mediterranean. The church disappeared from Cyprus. When you think about Jerusalem where the church began, you can't find a New Testament church there today. In the entire nation of Israel, where that war is taking place today, there is one congregation up north, north of Tel Aviv, on the, uh, near the uh, Sea of Galilee in Nazareth. Jesus' boyhood home, the only congregation there. Now, when we think about Cyprus, Cyprus had several Christians, but when you think about Cyprus, you think about one man. The man that you probably think about is Barnabas. And Barnabas is shown to us as a man who is terribly important for a lot of different reasons. First of all, he was important for his generosity. In Acts chapter 4, verse 36 and 37, we're introduced to him as a Levite of Cyprian birth. That is, he was from Cyprus. And he's the one that sold a piece of land and he gave it to the church so the church could continue to support itself as it's growing there in Jerusalem. He's a Levite, which means he probably didn't have property in Israel. Maybe he sold his land on Cyprus, but he was generous. He was also courageous. When you think about how the persecution caused all the saints to leave Jerusalem and to spread out and go different places, Barnabas stayed. Because in Acts 11, verse 19 and 20, they sent him to Antioch of Syria to encourage that church. And so he was a bold man who was not afraid of persecution. You also look at him and you see he's described by Luke as a man who is full of faith in the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 11, verse 24. He's a humble man, Acts chapter 14 and verse 4, because they tried to worship him at Lystra and he said, please don't do this because we're men just like you are. There's so many good things we could say about Barnabas, but you know what you remember about Barnabas? He's an encourager. Some people are such encouragers that it's what we have them synonymous with. And some people are known for something. We say that such and such is their middle name. 
Well, he was such an encourager that encouragement wasn't his middle name, it was his first name. And that man, uh, Barnabas, was always encouraging. Ask yourself, who was the first individual to try to get Saul of Tarsus accepted by the church? Read Acts 9 in verse 27. It's Barnabas. And in Acts chapter 11, who was it that saw so much potential in Antioch of Syria? Acts chapter 11, verse 23 and 24. It was Barnabas. In fact, Antioch of Syria becomes a crucial church in the first century as the activity moves from Jerusalem to Antioch. The first mission work was done from Antioch of Syria. And who was the first to see potential there? It was Barnabas. Hey, and who saw the potential in John Mark? Even when Saul, Paul, could not see use in him and thought that he had deserted them, Barnabas continued to believe in him. It's Something that we notice as we read through Acts that Barnabas, he disappears from the pages of inspiration in Acts 15 because of the sharp disagreement. Paul takes Silas, but Barnabas takes Mark and they go off and they do more work on Cyrus, I mean, on the Cyprus. And we believe that in Salamis, over where they first landed on this side of the island, that uh, history tells us that Barnabas was martyred for his faith. One man. When you think about Cyprus, maybe you think of that one man. You guys know, and it's an interesting thing, we've mentioned it here together, that so far as we know at this point, there is one Christian today, New Testament Christian, on the island of Cyprus. He is up there at a place called Fumagusta, just south of Nicosia. His name is Keith Nambali. He searched for truth. He took his phone. He didn't even have a Bible. For 18 months, he was trying to find uh, purpose in his life. It was during the COVID pandemic. And he was like everybody else. He was depressed and looking for meaning. And as he searched, he found what the Bible said about things like salvation and worship. And he set out to find a church that taught those things. And this led in the providence of God to him to come into contact with several brotherhood organizations. He began to watch videos and he became convicted that he needed to be baptized by a Christian to have his sins forgiven. There happened to be a man who was teaching in Israel who was a New Testament Christian, worshipped with the Nazareth Church and taught at the Jerusalem University. And he took a boat, he and his wife, over to Cyprus and baptized him in the Mediterranean Sea. They're studying with a young man named Isaac. He hasn't yet obeyed the gospel. A man named Wayne Parker, who's the missionary in residence at Fried Hardeman University, has made the decision with his wife to go up to that area of Nicosia, and they're going to try to reestablish the church. And the church will once again be where in its early days it began to flourish and grow. It's the power of one. I want you to think about as we leave the wonderful security of this place and we go out into our world day by day this week. Don't discount or minimize the power that you have as one. You never know whose life you're going to change as the result of a word that you say. Or an opportunity that you take to share the gospel with them. As they took the gospel, you'll, you'll know from the second and third missionary journey that they went different places. And we were thankful that we were able to go to some of those same places. The Apostle Paul on the second missionary journey left Thessalonica about 150-200 miles down the east coast of Macedonia. He left uh, Timothy and Silas to study with the new Christians and to continue to work with them, maybe do follow-up Bible studies. And he goes down here to Athens and he waits for them. He's a very educated, 
cosmopolitan man. He had all kind of cultural experience. He was a, a, a world, he, he knew the world. But when he went there, he was so surprised at what he saw. He was agitated, Acts 17 and verse 16. But he began to do what he always did. He began to preach in the synagogues of the Jews. And he taught the God-fearing Gentile converts in the synagogues. We don't know that he baptized anybody there. But he also went out into the marketplace. That is, he went out into the stores and into the secular world the Monday through Saturday, and he was out among the people. As a result of that, there were certain people, Epicureans and Stoics, that heard him. Epicureans were saying, basically, man's the measure of himself. Just get pleasure out of life. 1 Corinthians 15, 32, let's eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. The Stoic says reason is everything. And so Paul got up and he was speaking with them and they began to think, this guy's a vain babbler. What's he talking about? He's proclaiming strange deities. And so the Apostle Paul has an opportunity to go up on the Areopagus. And you'll see maybe some pictures of this as we talk this weekend. Mars Hill, somebody said they thought that was just a little mound of dirt. It's a huge, towering place. If you ever look at pictures of Athens, you'll see how it just towers over the city. And for those of us who walk to the top of that, we know just how high up it is. But over to the side, there's this little rock hill that is identified very clearly from archaeology as the Areopagus. It's probably likely that the Apostle Paul wasn't just preaching a sermon. He was giving a defense for his faith. And as he stood there on the Areopagus, he could look back at that towering Acropolis and it's many stories high. And he could see the, the false worship that had been practiced for centuries in its temple up on top of that hill. And the Apostle Paul was doing his Socrates. Did you know Socrates in 399 B.C. had been tried on that hill? And he had been put to death as a heretic because he taught that maybe that the gods were not to be worshipped. That maybe there's something more, there's something different. He didn't find the true God so far as we know. But that alone was enough to have him lose his life. And here's Paul, maybe, maybe fighting, reasoning for his life. And what does he do? He's given an opportunity in a very secular world. And he preaches the God of the Bible. He mentions a fellow in his talk, he mentions two. And one of them was a man named Epimenides, who was a poet from the island of Cyprus. Epimenides was responsible for what's called the Epimenides Paradox. Because he said in Titus 1, in verse 12, all Cretans are liars. Problem? He was a Cretan. So was he telling the truth? We don't know. But Epimenides also said, for in him we live and move and we exist. The Apostle Paul takes their philosophies, their philosophers and their pre-existing ideas and he tries to connect them to Christ. I don't know how you do that. I don't know if it's somebody you work with and you can talk about your common occupation and you use that as an opportunity to speak about God. I don't know if it's something that somebody's going through and in your sympathy and your empathy you can connect to them on that. But God wants us to be Paul's on Mars Hill making the most of the opportunities that he gives us. He goes on across the way uh, in Acts chapter 19, south of Izmir here, to a place that's now known today as Kusadasi. But it's right next to a city you know very well, Ephesus. And Ephesus is a city that has remained largely intact. 
And you can go there and you can find it. As our guide told us, there are some places that are five stars that we know for a certain that they are exactly where they, the Bible says that they are. We don't have to wonder if this is the actual site. There are several in Ephesus, including an amphitheater. If you all followed with Kathy's and the other's uh, pictures, you may have seen that I was able to preach in that theater. And there's a lot of places that Paul preached that I didn't get to, but I got to preach somewhere Paul didn't get to because he wasn't allowed to go in that theater, if you remember, in Acts chapter 19. The Asiarchs and the disciples said, you stay away from there. But Paul was a local preacher at Ephesus for three years. He did a remarkable work. But the thing that stands out is that when he continued to teach and preach, ultimately... There was a great disturbance in the city. Now, you're like me. You probably don't want to hurt anybody's feelings or ruffle anybody's feathers. But talk about your faith long enough, and you're going to find yourself causing a disturbance about the way. Now, we shouldn't be the ones who are being ugly and cause the disturbance to happen because of our personality or being obnoxious. But sharing Jesus is going to have that effect. And we take great comfort because it did even for him. But you know like I do that this was all about Rome. When the Apostle Paul is making his way around and he was there at Athens, over here in the Isthmus is Corinth. God told him that there's many people in the city. He's told on his ship ride that he's got to go and appear before Caesar. He makes his way to Rome. This is the last place I want us to look at. I want you to think about how Rome was in God's mind before it was ever on the world map. Nebuchadnezzar is having a hard time sleeping in Daniel chapter 2. He has this dream, and nobody can decipher it for him. He's going to kill all the wise men in the land, and Daniel says, don't, don't do that. There's a God in heaven, and he's going to show you. So Daniel comes, he tells him the dream and its interpretation, and he sees this figure, and the figure at the bottom with its iron legs and its iron feet and its clay feet is a reference to the Roman Empire. And he says, in the days of these kings shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed. Fast forward in time, Jesus says, there are some of you tasting death, uh, uh, there are some of you who will not taste death till you see the kingdom come, Mark says, with power, Mark 9 and verse 1. Jesus raises from the dead. He says, remain in Jerusalem until you are endued with power on high. Acts 1 and verse 8. That happens in Acts chapter 2. Holy Spirit comes on them. They speak to every man in his language and people hear the gospel. And in the great Roman Empire that dominated the map, the gospel began to spread. But there in the heart where false worship was being done, you're studying that in the book of Revelation, the Apostle Paul ultimately makes his way and he speaks before kings and rulers of the earth. All over, we look in our Bibles, in Philippians, and we see how he speaks to uh, proconsuls there, on Cyprus, to Roman uh, proconsuls. We see him in Caesarea speaking to Jewish governors. We see him speaking to the Sanhedrin court in Jerusalem. And finally he speaks to the Caesar in Acts 27 and 28. Does he do good? Does he make an impression? Well, Philippians 4.22 says that some saints are found in Caesar's household. I don't know how often you go to that little part after your New Testament, after Revelation, and look at the maps. Maybe you're not a map nerd like I am. But it's very important to think about what this means to the church today. On the first Sunday we were there, we worshiped with a church in Rome. A little church of about 35 or 40 maybe. They have elders. We corresponded with them. 
We overwhelmed them when 56 came in and joined that and a few other guests that day. And I thought about how the, the gospel didn't just come to Rome. Look in Acts 2 and verse 11 and you see how Romans came down to Jerusalem and heard the gospel. How did the church get established in Rome? It wasn't Paul. But when Paul is going to Rome, he meets Christians at little towns outside of Rome. Maybe they went on Pentecost and they heard the gospel preached and took it back home. The church spread. It was strong in the city of Rome. But now it's down to a few small disciples. Back in the 60s, when it couldn't be found, several American missionaries went over and planted the church. My point in all that is, is the beauty of the gospel is it's a seed that can be planted anywhere at any time, and it will produce its results. It's wonderful to see here in Bowling Green the church growing. We're in the buckle of the Bible Belt, and we're seeing how many Christians there are. But what will it be three or four hundred years from now? Maybe the work that we're doing across the world will result in missionaries who come and plant the gospel where we are. That's the beauty of how the gospel spreads. This is what I think we learned about the Mediterranean Sea. It reminds us of some of the truths the Bible tells us. We have an anchor for the soul, both sure and steadfast. Hebrews 6 and verse 19. That we will never go someplace where we're beyond the reach of God's hand and his leadership. Even the depths of the sea. Psalm 139 and verse 9. And we have a master who is more powerful than the winds and the waves. Matthew 8 and verse 27. But we have that gospel in a world full of temples and philosophies and ideas and distractions that would keep our eyes off of Jesus. I'm thankful that what we learn from the book of Acts is not something on an ancient map. It reveals time, timeless principles that are important for us today. The gospel that was taken on Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 is the same gospel that we present today. God doesn't want it changed. He wants it presented as it was from the beginning. That the hope is in Jesus Christ. That the only way to fulfilling our purpose in this life is through Him. And that there is no joy and happiness apart from Him. And so we take the opportunity every time we bring a lesson to a close to offer heaven's invitation. So encouraged by Jonte this morning, taking advantage of that. Maybe there's someone who needs to ask us to pray for you through something that you're going through and we would like for us to pray with you or for you. Maybe you're ready to make that decision to be obedient to Christ. If we can help you, we want to encourage you right now as we stand and sing.